right, guys, uh, we're back with our next uh, tanky therapy. And it's like, um, I don't know, there's so many feelings because it's uh, we're now into like the funerals for people that we know. Um, you know, it's we're recording on December 10th. So a couple of days ago, we got news of Rifat Alarir's uh, murder, assassination. Uh, he's a literature prof. Um John and Nora have had him on the Electronic Intifada live streams several times. And from what we know, he was basically called. Uh, they told him he, they were going to bomb the school he was at. Uh, he left the school and then they bombed him at his sister's house. So it was like, um, you know, a, mo a targeted hunt hunting down of a civilian uh, friend of ours. So, um, you know, I wanted to... I know people will want to talk about him. I know people will want to talk about anything else that we've been seeing the past week. We were going to, we were going to, we usually wait two weeks in between, but because all of this happened, uh, we're going to go this week. Uh, we have John, uh, Nora, as I mentioned, we have Alex, Sina, we have Tarek Lubani, and we have Louis all day. So hi, everybody. Um, uh, there are two things I wanted to say before I hand it over to the first person, and it's like a couple of tweets uh, that I read that are about, you know, feelings. And one of them is, I, I, and I don't necessarily know these people, but I, you know, I follow them on Twitter. One of them is called Agent NDN, and I think it's a native person, like a First Nations person from the so-called Canada. And they wrote, the genocide of Palestinians is changing something inside of me. I don't know what it is. I don't have the words for it. Uh, it's probably just sorrow welling up, but it's changing me. I don't think I was under any illusions yet. I'll never look at so many things the same way again. Uh, and then he goes on, they go on. So one thing that did surprise me was seeing how many doctors will support the mass murder of civilians if it's Israelis doing the killing until then. And I was under the illusion that a lot more of them would be more principled and braver standing up for doctors in Gaza. Nope. So that's one. And then the other one, um, someone named Dana White, I think it's an American uh, activist. Um, I think they're, yeah, anti-racism facilitator is the hand, is the bio, but he said, not even in a depressed or despairing sort of way, but genocide has made so many other things and people uninteresting, uninspiring, and unattractive. I'm disgusted, not depressed. And I think those are both, uh, I, don't, I don't think I've mentioned either of those feelings. Uh, until now but I, both of those really spoke to me one is like the illusions and like it's not as much it's not so much losing illusions as discovering illusions that i had that i'm losing because i'm losing them um so yeah i want i just wanted to start with those things and louis since you're you know you're here for the first time and Tarek, so we'll start with you louis i'll, I'll give you your time your 10 minutes if you want to just whatever you want to share and whatever you want to say Thanks, Justin. Um, yeah, I feel I kind of feel like I could talk for two hours, but at the same time, I have almost nothing to say. Um, it's just a completely strange dynamic at the moment. Um, and actually, I I saw one of the tweets that you you just read out the first one, um, and it made me think of something that I saw you say um, when you were discussing kind of why why is this, uh, this so psychologically difficult um you know the answer to that is obvious in some ways um <clears throat> but i think some of the some of the things you said in that thread 
have kind of been on my mind since. And I think, I think there are some people that are genuinely shocked and have had their worldview completely altered. Um, who were, I guess, you know, not, I don't mean the dis, dis, disparagingly, but who were more naive. And I don't think that would probably really apply to, to, to any of us. Yet there is still something that is shocking. You know, I think I, once you come to know the history, once you come to know the, the present reality, once you come to know the, the genocidal nature of Israeli society, of settler colonialism generally, you know, you know that something like this, or we knew something like this, this sustained killing, we knew this was possible. Um, but to see it happen in the way that we have is, yeah, like you said, it's psychologically extremely difficult. Um, and there was something you said in that thread about how kind of childhood illusions that are very, I think, very stubborn, that even though you're not naive, even though you're, you know, we're educated, we're aware, we're anti-imperialist, there's still something in you that thinks, no, some, something will happen. Something, something will come from somewhere, even if it's for like kind of um, cynical or strategic reasons, something will happen that this will stop. And waking up day after day, day after day, and you know, progressively realizing it's it's not. And I think what happened, especially I think what happened in the first kind of, especially the first few weeks, I think a lot of that energy, that almost kind of fairy tale hope energy, got projected onto Hezbollah, and there was this unfair, unrealistic expectation that they just they've got to save them. They've got they've got to they, they do something, declare war, something you know, something has to happen. And there was some really, and when Nasrallah called that first speech, which was not a normal speech, it was a speech directly to address Gaza and everything that was happening. There were a lot of, I think, kind of quite, and again, I don't even really say this disparaging in it necessarily, kind of juvenile reactions to that speech from people that should have known better, I think, yeah. that he, you know, as, as in he should have just declared war and... Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and this is not to discuss the reasons of why that wasn't possible or why that wasn't going to happen. It's more that, okay, let's say, for example, in that speech, Nasrallah gave the fieriest speech of his life and declared war. All that would have done is increased civilian suffering and expanded it elsewhere, i.e. Lebanon, especially. And I think those kind of hopes are being extinguished um and it's a very very clarifying you know i think lots of people have used this word clarifying but the the last well it's over two months now the, the last two months have been clarifying but clarifying in a kind of monstrous and terrifying way and things that i think we all already knew on some level or believed to be the case based on evidence, but we now know, you know, absolutely beyond any doubt. And it was actually one of your your message, your your tweets, sorry, um, that made me think of this. I remember thinking, um, I mean, it's already heavy, but to get a bit heavy, I remember when my dad died, 
I felt like that was the end of my childhood. And, you know, I was in my 30s. So my childhood was already, by most definitions, my my childhood was well and truly finished anyway. But I remember in in those few days after, that was like a recurring feeling for me. And I feel like that's, it's like, oh no, now my childhood is over. The, the the horror that we've seen and the kind of absolute clarity that there is no limit, there is no restraint, there is no humanity, there is nothing that will stop. No, sorry, not that nothing that was that will stop them. I don't want to be defeatist. That's actually not how I feel at all. There is things that will stop them, but it's only force, basically. And just to go back to what you to what the other tweet you said about um disgusted not depressed or words to that effect i think those people who are feeling most depressed and most eaten up are those who i think their heart is in the play in the right place in many ways but they are and i was just talking uh, about this with a friend friend called mahmoud but they are unable to see the resistance as a source of hope and positivity um and so all they see is the killing and the despair and the no limits of the israel and the us and i think this speaks to a broader problem which i've spoken about for quite a few years now is that people have these very very strong feelings about palestine in the abstract but then they kind of either ignore or condemn or completely detach themselves from the actual material reality of the, who is fighting and who still is fighting. And, you know, I mean, like right now, and, you know, people like John do, on on this call now, you know, doing amazing work analyzing those military successes. But I think a lot of people are consciously or not just ignoring that. And so all they see is they're the people I think are going through the I'm obviously talking people external to the actual situation. They're, who I think, going through the most anguish because they can't see the resistance as a positive and as a source of hope and as a source of change. Um, and, you know, there are loads of reasons for that. You know, foremost amongst them, especially in, in North America and in the UK, is people are scared. They're, you know, they they are, it, it's criminal. You know, I'd, I'd be lying if I if I said I'm not, be, not, I mean, maybe not right now, but in certain situations, you have to con- consider, you know, I could go to, to, I could be arrested for saying this. And obviously that's completely deliberate on their part. They only introduced that legislation in the UK two years ago after Safe Al-Quds. And it's a, it's, a, it's a deliberate way to try and divorce Palestinian, you know, the Palestinian solidarity movement from Hamas and the, the, the other resistance factions that are actually fighting. Um, and that's obviously not a problem that's easy to overcome. Um, but I think it needs to be, you know, addressed. Um, I, I don't know how long I've spoken for. I'm probably rambling. Sorry. Um, there was yeah. just one other thing. One other thing I wanted to say. Um, I was listening to <clears throat> uh, Abdul Jawad Amar on um, millennials are killing capitalism, um, and he quoted. Let me just get it up. This amazing. Um, piece by Hussein Marouwe. Hussein Marouwe was a Lebanese communist. He's kind of the, the main ideologue of the Lebanese <clears throat> Communist Party until he was killed in, um, assassinated in 1987. And he wrote this piece in 1982, I think 
at well at some point during the Israeli invasion of eighty two, and it's called um, kind of loosely translated the the sadness uh, that kills and the sadness of the fighter, and it's about different kinds of uh, of sadness. Um, Unfortunately, it's in Arabic, but I'm thinking about trying to translate it or I'll get someone to translate it because it's so good. Um, but it's about these two different types of sadness and the sadness that can kill you, basically, and defeat you. And then there's the sadness of the fighter, um, which it ends. Let me just quickly trans translate it. It's like the, there's the sadness of the youth that's in, in the battle itself. And it's the sadness of the fighter. And it's a, a holy sadness. It's a it's a noble hatred, and it's one of the most beautiful forms of great sadness. That's a really bad quick translation, but it's more the point that it's, there's there's different types of sadness that we can feel, and what we can choose or try to choose to do with the with the feelings of sadness and mourning that we feel, um, and it just brings it together so amazing. And and you know it's so telling that. The reason he wrote that was because of a de devastating Israeli invasion and bombardment of Beirut, and because of the nature of of Israel, it's kind of all, it's permanently uh, relevant, basically. Um, but I think it's especially pertinent right now. Forty years ago, so forty years of this. Yeah, I remember just uh, before I pass it on. Like I remember, you guys all remember that Galloway interview from two thousand six when when Sky News asked him you know, about Hezbollah. And he said, you know, he started by saying 24 years ago, I, I ran to my daughter's uh, birth from a demonstration against the invasion of Lebanon. And now my daughter's 24 years old, and I'm still doing it. And his daughter is 40 years old now. So that daughter that he was referring to would be 40 now. So um, thank you, Louis. Uh, that was... Um, yeah, I mean the 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 loss of illusions exactly as you say, and like uh, yeah, I mean it, it. You do feel it's it's not just like your childhood's over. Like it also makes you regress to childlike. Like that's how I feel often. I feel like I have these fantasies, you know. Like I just want to go and save people. I just want to go and stop everything. Uh, you know, I just I I have like all these things of what you know, like what you what would you do if you had a billion dollars? Like what would you do if you had superpowers? Like it just I'm yeah. I'm spending time in this fantasy world, you know. And I, and I and think another contradiction I'm feeling as well is how to how to talk to talk to this talk about this with, with my with my son yeah um, because at the same time you know i'm i'm feeling for me all oh, my childhood is over what yeah then how do i then because you yeah. know i'm I've, i'm clearly sad at the moment and, and you know I, things are not you know obviously i'm shielding and yeah. kind of protecting to a large degree but at the same time i don't want to completely because i think it's very important but yeah. at the same time you also need, I think, as a parent, you need to explain mood changes, basically. So then yeah. I'm kind of confronted with how how do you do this? And yeah. am I going to do it in a way that is instilling in him fairy tale ideas, which he's then yeah. going to repudiate some point down the line? And because you know, a lot of the time it's about good guys and bad guys, and um, which is not in. <laughs> I think not inaccurate in this situation. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's not wrong. Yeah. But, you know, anyway. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
Okay, Tarek, do you want to take your time? Yeah, thank you guys. Uh, you sound pretty bad. Something's wrong with your sound right now. Okay. Is that why you put up your hand, Sina? Is this better? Yes, way better. Thank you. All right. Um, I was just uh, saying thank you guys so much for having me here. It's been um, obviously harrowing and a terrible time for the last few weeks, but I do find that right now I'm um, feeling a bit of a turnaround in my priorities. You know, my, my priorities initially and for quite some time really revolved around uh, how to stop the killing, stop the suffering. And obviously those things are really, really important and a lot of people have to work on them and that occupies a good chunk of my time. However, especially since this restart of the negotiations, it seems pretty clear to me, like probably everybody else on this call, not just that the Israelis are losing, but that we're in the process right now of negotiating the surrender of the Israelis. And I think for most people, when they look, when they hear that statement, they can't quite put it together with the massive massacres that are happening daily, including today. Like there, there was a massacre today. You know, there's a massacre every day. The question is where and how many people and what new depraved school, hospital, uh, place that used to be a sanctuary to the whole world until it happened, will it be? With that realization that like now we're trying to figure out the the surrender of the Israelis, I've started to kind of think back to other times when this, the Israelis have either lost or been in situations where they've been forced to make concessions and how they've successfully pulled out victories out of these defeats. And that really has, has been the thing that's like occupied my mind the most um, is how to make sure that, that the Palestinians don't end up with a essentially a military strategic victory and then the Israelis come in over time and chip away at the gains that that they make. Uh, the, the part that I'm most concerned about is health and medicine and hospitals and so on. So how will we make sure that, that, that those avenues remain open? But, you know, obviously I'm thinking about all the other stuff. The, so I guess that's, that's where my brain is at, not necessarily talking about my feelings, um, but, you know, that's what I've been thinking a lot about. I heard what you said, Justin, about, you know, the betrayal of organized, uh, like medical organizations. And I've been feeling that really deeply. Like I have never really engaged my own organizations. And I feel like this is probably similar to most people. You know, I stayed away from my hospital. I stayed away from my university. I stayed away from from my medical organizations other than to kind of make sure they don't do anything terrible um, and to intervene reactively when they do. Because, you know, Western suspended a student who did absolutely zero wrong um, because of a racist misinterpretation of what, what he had written. And so we had to step in and make sure that, that this student who was suspended sudden death wasn't then sort of followed up with an expulsion, which is what they were going for for a while. Um, but I've seen the students do amazing things, medical students. For example, in Canada, there's the Canadian Federation of Medical Students and the Ontario Medical Students Association 
both have signed on to ceasefire now declarations. Both of them have condemned the killing of uh, medical personnel. I, I, I mean, they haven't done it for the arrest of medical personnel, but I think just because it wasn't contemporaneous when they were making their resolutions. So I see it less as these institutions are fundamentally bad. They are, of course, but and more that we haven't really pushed. Like, I think that in, in our own maybe denialism, defeatism, cowardliness, we've ended up in a situation where we haven't really pushed hard on our organizations. And so now we're being led by the students, which is almost the story of solidarity on Palestine throughout this entire war. Like, who's led us? Hasn't been the unions. It hasn't been the, the quote, adults. It's been the youth movements. It's been the kids, the youth, the young people. And so it is as well with uh, with the medical associations. So I'm I'm optimistic in general. Like I have started thinking, you know, um, and maybe this kind of comes back down to the juvenile nature that you're talking about, Justin. Like, well, now we will have a billion dollars. Now we will have an open border. We will have a free Palestine in a sense. Like, what are we going to do with that? You know, because that's just step one. What are we going to do the morning after liberation? Because it fucking looks like liberation's coming. It really, really looks that way. And I, I think what the Israelis have done unintentionally is to make everybody, myself included, really say, like, we are never going to go through this again. I'm never going to go back to how it was before. You know, the things that I accepted, I will no longer accept. I will never, you know, I was thinking about this when I saw them sewing up this child's head. Like, I'm, I used to do that routinely during, quote, peace. Like, I never want to go back to that. I never want to go back to intubating with, that's like where you put somebody on life support, with medications that they stopped using in London 35 years ago. No, I never want to do that. And I think when I talk to people in Gaza, and obviously I'm talking to friends all the time, that's what I'm hearing from them too. This has to change. And they won't accept anything but change. And they are suffering so hard. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I can see that that there's a way out here. And when I think of it, I think we all kind of think as of Qassam as being the thing stopping the genocide. And in a big way, that's true. Directly, that's true. But it's not just Qassam. You know, the Palestinians understood very, very well that the resistance is divided out into all of these categories. You know, obviously the armed resistance we all think about or know about, they clearly understand the mediatic value, right? Like just imagine how different this war would be if we didn't have GoPro cameras on basically every fighter, the Israelis would just say, no, they didn't. And everybody would be like, okay, I guess they didn't. And so, and it's the funny thing is the Israelis are still doing it with the GoPros. Um, and, and so I think of all of the pieces of resistance, clearly solidarity is a piece of the resistance. And that's one in which we're all participating. You know, if I, if I want us all to go to jail, I'd say that's our jihad. But, you know, I guess since we don't, we won't say that. I'm saying that, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, sorry, I I, I want to let you finish. You... I, I think the point is that, like, we all have to join this particular resistance 
you know, the resistance not being any of the stupid things that the Israelis will try to pin on us, but the resistance really well and truly being the resistance for dignity of Palestinians, for freedom of Palestinians, for the human rights of the Palestinians. And uh, and I, I think, you know, for me, that's going to involve trying to make sure that medical care is provided to people. Um, for you guys, each of us kind of have, have our own different domains, but yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, it's, it's very interesting because when you were, the, the way you were talking Louis too, about, um, you know, that, that, you know, the search for like a magic button, like maybe, maybe Hezbollah can press that stop the genocide now button and then everything will be, it will, will stop. And it's like, I, I, it, it, there, the, there, there are so many games like even the way the humanitarian pause played out, you know, since since Julius Caesar, you know, military writers have been writing about like when some when when things are going for a while and then they stop, it's like an incredibly psychologically vulnerable moment where everybody's like, oh, okay, like we can let our guard down. The killing has stopped. And and the way it ramped back up again you know, from the civilian perspective, uh, has just, it's, it's, it also is a way to do a number on, on people. Right. But it's like despair. To jump in just a moment there, Justin, I think that's why so many of us were so much angrier because we saw that Israel got its, its goals. The goal of the entire project was to get those uh, prisoners out. They got it through negotiation. Palestinians got what they wanted through negotiation yeah you know obviously yeah. that's a that's yeah. a multi-part they got, their, thing. they got their their women and children out. yeah it's like we, we all know how you're gonna get what you want like what the fuck man why are we doing this and yeah. i think that's why i was even more angry and of course the targeting of cultural icons both physical right. like in terms of the buildings and the people it just it's been and the particularly planting flags and the prisoner photos of of masses of people in their underwear and the humiliation they're smashing up a gift shop and and then just yeah. like then you have to listen to the american spokesman say they're doing their best to minimize civilian deaths and yeah it's just um it's a trip anyway. yeah sure it's a trip. uh nora Ugh. um yeah first off i i, I resonate so much with what you said, Louis, and and what you said, Tarek, and and I I was also gonna talk about your tweet, Justin, your thread the other day about um how just psychologically destabilizing this all is and why that is and and yeah like this this loss of of these very basic fundamental truths that that we that we have to hold on to in order to live in this world. Like, you know, when, when, when my son, you know, is being treated badly by a friend at school, we talk about bullying and we get people involved and we call the parents and, you know, and I talked to Dashiell about being a good friend and, you know, what to do when you're in a situation when you're not being treated well and that there are always going to be people around you to keep you safe and to step in and to stop the bully from harming others. 
And these are the truths that we have to tell our kids. And these are the truths that we have to tell ourselves in order for us to function. And, and so seeing, seeing that completely fall away, um, leaving us now to explain not just to our kids that that's not fundamental anymore, but, but to ourselves that, that we see so much that is wrong. We're, we're seeing, we're seeing a house on fire with people inside and no one is coming to put it out. Um, and it just, I, I don't, yeah, I think, I think that what that's done for me is, um, I think I go into that place of disgust rather than depression. Absolutely. I'm depressed. It's hard. It's hard to really have capacity to function, to do much. And I'm really grateful for the job that I have because at least that's something that I can do. Um, but, but I think for me, it just kind of, um, it induces this revulsion, um, and distrust and, and real, like, yeah, like, you know, like one of the tweets that you, that you mentioned at the beginning, like, I'll never see things the same again, even though, you know, I've, I've been doing this work for more than 20 years. Like I've never, I've never seen anything this horrifying and I've never seen people act the way that they're acting. Um, and I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna be the same. Um, and so I'm doing a, a lot of like, Oh God, what does that say about me? <laughs> like, who am I going to be in 20 years from now? Um, am I going to be like, extremely just am I gonna continue the the anger and the rage and revulsion that I feel right now is that just gonna be who I am um and and then and then I you know I, I listen to Tarek and 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 it and it and I'm reminded that like no no we are gonna win Palestinians are are struggling for their liberation and and nobody ever thought that it was going to be easy or bloodless or not painful or that there wasn't going to be a, an extraordinary amount of loss but that every day we wake up and we and 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 you know and and we and we see what's happening in the world and we turn another month on our calendar like we're one day closer to that day. Um, and it is encouraging to see how much of a failure Israel is militarily. Um, and, and to see that being filmed every day is, it's really, uh, it's uplifting. Um, and it's, and, and, and then I'm just heartbroken. And that, so it's like, I'm like ping-ponging back and forth between these, these feelings of incredible grief fueled by just the most incendiary rage I can imagine. And then like absolute, you know, optimism uh, for Palestinians and, and for us, um, and 
Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, it, the last few days have been kind of surreal, just, you know, finding out about Rifat and going through, um, you know, the last 10 years of emails between me and him and text messages and remembering, um, how, how he was, uh, you know, when he came to visit in the Bay area and, and, you know, hung out with my kid and, um, we went to dinner and, and I just remember like him just being like, just hilarious and, and, and sardonic and, um, and, and, and I, and I'm watching all these videos of him, uh, throughout the years. Um, the one, the one that I keep, uh, going back to is, is, uh, I think it was October 7th or maybe it was the day after when he was on the BBC and he just, he just lights a fire underneath all of this propaganda that the BBC anchor was, was trying to get him to concede to. And, you know, his ability to, to call, to call what the Palestinian resistance did um, for what it is, which is a moral um, responsibility and preemptive attack on the enemy. And he said that over and over again um, when the, the, you know, the anchor was trying to get him to condemn Hamas and condemn Iran. And isn't this just like, a, you know, the, the, the Palestinians are being used as tools of Iran and you know, and he was just like, he wasn't having any of it. He wasn't giving it any oxygen. Um, and he was so precise and so eloquent. And, you know, in, 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 in mourning him, um, mourning our friend, mourning this teacher of so many countless people. And Louis, your, your tribute to him that you, that you wrote and we published on, on EI, where you, um, you know, you, you kind of tie his, his legacy in with that of Ghassan Kenefani in this really beautiful and absolutely precise way. Um, it, it's, it's, it's so clear that what Rifat and what others before him, Ghassan Kenefani, and, but also like ordinary people in Gaza who don't get the privilege of, of being known you know, outside of Gaza, the shopkeepers and janitors and healthcare workers and, you know, newspaper journalists and street sweepers and, you know, these, everyone, we, when, when we, when we mourn Rifat, we are also mourning everybody. And when we lift up Rifat, we are lifting up everybody. Um, and 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 we are like I just have to keep believing that we we are one day closer to to that liberation and to seeing the end of Israel and and the Zionist project because it is absolutely I mean it's always been a failure and it's always been a repulsive idea and 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 it's and it's over I mean how can it come back after this I don't I don't understand how it will because it won't so. <laughs> Well, what I love about Rafat was uh, 
you that example is so perfect because like he's not that defensive person he's not the defensive person who's like trying to persuade you that you know you've you're you're misinterpreting what he's saying or that you're you know reading into him what he's not saying like he's like no you know that that he he's sarcastic and you know he sees the absurdity of it and he calls it the absurdity of it when he sees it and yeah and he did it all over he did it every day on twitter yeah Yeah. if i can if i can say one thing about him though even uh rifat as amazing and insightful as he was he consistently underestimated his own capacity capability and power and i i can't like help but think of his that last like the famed last interview you guys probably saw where he talks he's like who am i i'm just a professor and i only have an expo marker his fucking expo marker has done so much for the palestinian cause has done so much for the palestinian cause it's incredible and one of the things that I always think about is how we consistently underestimate our capacity and our capability. Even yeah. a man as brilliant as Rifat, like, can't understand, couldn't conceptualize how powerful he was and how powerful that fucking expo marker is. I hope it's yeah. in a museum someday. Yeah, I mean, that that <laughs> interview um, was actually the first one that we did with him. I think it was October 9th. Um, uh, you know, during this this latest spate of genocidal attacks. And that was, you know, you could hear the bombs going off in the background. And yeah, and like, I think I was, I was talking about this with my friend last night, like that, that clip of him saying, you know, the toughest thing I have in my house is an expo marker. Um, and, and with my, you know, last dying breath, if, if the Israelis come to massacre me, I'm going to throw it at them with all of my might, you know, something like that. And that, and that John and I were able to be witness to that as, you know, like during, during that episode, um, I, I feel like, um, I, I'm just so grateful that, that, that we were, that we were with him in, in that moment and that that moment has now like, reverberated like all over the world and and you know you see vigils for for Rifat where people are bringing boxes of expo markers you know like laying them next to his his portrait and with candles and like I just it's 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 so um it's so he was so precious and and he was so humble and and yet I mean, I know that he knew how loved he was, and I I know that he took that seriously, and and um, and I know, yeah, I just I I'm I'm really I don't know I'm I miss him, and I keep I keep like you know uh, waiting for that text to come through, like psych, <laughs> I'm here, I lived, you know. Yeah, um, I would go over emails when somebody dies. I was like, yeah, yeah. like I can write them back. And then maybe... Yeah, yeah, he's right there, like, <laughs> still in my, like, you know, like, when you look yeah. on WhatsApp, like, it was so recent that we were texting that he's still, like, on the, 
you know, on the first page that you see with all the lists of people and like, he's right there, but, but he's still always going to be here. Like it's, it just the, the amount there's, there's like 150 translations now of his poem. Yeah. That's and, amazing. If you see that thread, anyone it's who can all over the world started exactly. by the Chinese translator, I think. With I that love that. And Urdu and yeah, they all. Yeah. Know. Okay. If I can, if I can jump in with um, another little piece here, which is, that you know in islamic lore the idea is that you shouldn't consider these people who are dead to be anything but alive mm -hmm. and it goes to the idea that you know we have to bury people we have to emotionally speaking we have to kill people emotionally speaking um and because his life was cut short you know the i think the thought here is that we it's now our duty to take him forward you know to hold that expo marker and to make sure that his teachings keep keep getting advanced yeah. John. thank you Nora. yeah i mean i i think that the story about uh rafat really gets to um the things that i was going to say in the therapy which is that you know we keep talking about how it's unprecedented and how the scale is so enormous but I find that, you know, the scale is made up of all of these individual events and we know these events well. I know these events really well. Um, and I feel like um, I, in order to not be overwhelmed by that, I've really kept things compartmentalized. And even just the, the idea of doing this show where you guys would ask me how I feel about something is like, uh, I, I felt like I was like, trying to get out of it but um yeah the the scale is enormous but um e each event is just um at, like Rafat was a window into that right like we saw Rafat um tell the story about um each and every day and that was one of the things when he came on the show um he never told us his stories. Like he never told us how bad it was for him. He always talked about other people. Um, and that was just a natural um, thing. And I feel like I'm, I didn't come to this. I came to this conflict through war. I, I started covering it during the Intifada and I was pretty young and I lived there and I lived um, in Janine and, and experienced this, each and every day, wake up every morning um, to the sound of tanks and basically in the streets um, all day. And then you'd come home at night and sit around with people and and enjoy the space and um, the feelings of the horror and the sh and the and the disgust um, was able to sort of uh, wash away because you were immersed in. Um, in the struggle and understanding the costs of that was uh, something that Palestinians just had such a, a, a firm grasp on. And I just find Rafat was just such a window into that. Um, and all the things that I won't reiterate the things that um, the Louis and Nora said about him that are great. And I appreciate those additions by Tarek. That's a, um, a really excellent point. I just think that the scale part it is these individual events that we know, and it's and it's difficult to um, 
to digest and I haven't been able to do any of that. So I don't think that I am in touch with my feelings at, at all. Um, uh, but my conversations, like Tarek said, are, are the same. My, my conversations after October 7th were all my friends writing me saying like, I can't wait till we go back to Gaza next week together, like next week, right? Like they weren't saying six months from now. Um, yeah, and just that kind of spirit just keeps me totally going. And, uh, you know, living in Janine, when I went to, I, I went from Janine to Gaza and all of my friends in Janine called me and were like, like after months and months of, of horror in Janine, and I went to Gaza and my friends in Janine, when they found out, phone were phoning saying, "You can't. You have to get out of there. It's it's too dangerous, you know." And you've just lived these experiences with people um, that couldn't have been more dangerous and couldn't have been involved more loss. Um, but it, yeah, just that 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 humanity um, is is how I came into this. Um, I didn't I didn't study and then and then arrive. I my experiences were shaped by the Palestinians that I was living around and watching. And by the time I got to Janine, it was late in the Intifada. And so um people were really good at what they were doing. They were good at at the tasks, you know, that Tarek talked about, um, the layers of resistance. Um, people knew how to get bread under siege. Um, they knew how to make schools happen um, in back alleys when the schools were closed um, people really kind of had learned uh, how to operate and um, I was just totally immersed in that and for so many years that's all I knew and then there was kind of that in-between period in between um, the struggle and the um, you know when the struggle took on a different shape in the in the 2010s um, that I felt, um, yeah, just that this, this, the war of liberation feels more natural. It feels like a more, um, natural place to be. And I try to keep things really compartmentalized, um, in order to stay focused on that, because I do feel like this is a really important moment. Um, and I think a lot of the people, everybody on this, um, on this panel, I think knows that. And, and I, I, I worry about too much about, um, getting into my feelings, um, about it, but yeah, just that the, the, the story is that when you hear these massive numbers and they make your, your brain, um, uh, unable to process just, just that it's, it's so important to remember that they're all these individual events and um, Rufat is, is, is a window into that. Um, because when we would talk to him, he would tell us what his just daily struggles were um, about how, how difficult it was just, just existing um, in these last, um, you know, six weeks, especially in the North, um, just total deprivation and brutality um, that it, every day was just a constant war for survival. And, um, he gave us that window. And I think, um, you know, people have said really amazing things. I don't think that, um, you know, I think people have done an amazing job of, of capturing, uh, his spirit and what, and what he brought. Um, and I think it's just really important to remember that, that, you know, everybody's family had a, 
has a refat and um and everybody's trying to find out where their families are trying to make decisions um each day like do i you know the decisions that refat was making about where he put his family um what you do when you're being threatened um and that puts people around you at risk um and people are just completely um yeah, just Palestinians just do such an incredible job uh, of that. And we saw it from the prisoners too, right? Like the, the the kids getting out of prison. And the first thing they're saying is, you know, our happiness is incomplete because of what's happening in Gaza. Or they're coming out and saying like, this is what liberation is. You think, you know, what did you think liberation was? Um, you know, this is what it looks like. Don't, you know, don't cry for us, like fight. Um you know those kind of those kind of messages i just think are so uh, are so critical when we're all you know just there's so much despair and so much disgust i mean i think um the disgust is a really important uh, and the anger is a really important part of all of this and um yeah i hope i hope that we never ever forget how angry we are um yeah, because I just, people in Gaza just aren't, this whole idea of like what comes the next day after, like you have an entire Gaza Strip that's ready um, to fight for their whole lives. So I think there's a lot to be optimistic about in this moment and victory involves, um, yeah, a lot of devastation and disgust on the road and Israel doesn't really have anything else to offer. Um and so I think we're just seeing that uh, that brutality right now. But the the resistance um, is incredible. And just in my in our lives, like you're talking about George Galloway's uh, mm -hmm. children or whatever. Like just just in our lives, like living in Gaza in 2003 to compare the Kassam brigades of 2003 to 2023, it's incredible. Um, the the way that the all the factions are operating together um, uh, under a joint command, um, just the the development of that um, it, it's truly remarkable to watch, and and it was remarkable to watch in Lebanon as well. And I think for what Louis said at the beginning, like I I understand why people wanted the resistance to come and save them because, um, you know that that I think that impetus um, that, that those are signs of of winning that that means you're winning um when you're when you're able to to pick and choose um the the battlefield and and to just see the development of those two movements of hezbollah um and Qassam over the last 20 years i think um and i think that's why israel's reacting this way i think they know they do know the clock is ticking and and this is the point of their struggle where they don't need to you know to nuance things they just um, mass arrest um, and tell us that that you know that that mass arrest of of you know aged men from the UN school somehow came out of a tunnel complaining about Sinwar. It's just it's so absurd. It's so far from the reality of what's happening that I think it really does underscore Israel's position right now. And I and I I'm trying to to keep compartmentalized um, because I think that this is. Uh, uh, try not to get overwhelmed, and and I feel like I, I try to I try to think about Rafat just like you know telling us to to stay focused, and to, so I hope that I hope that we do that. Um, 
we are talking about total moral collapse of Israel, Israel's military. Uh, you know, you watch the telegram channels where they're celebrating carnage and and death and and you know you look at the footage of a party of a wedding party you know they're celebrate they're stabbing pictures of a toddler who was born who was burned to death at wedding parties um it's like um it's moral collapse and and every institution in the west that's going along with it is also moral in moral collapse and so that's also like why the future is so mysterious because it's like open moral collapse of all the institutions of our society is not something to there is some hypocrisy there's some there's usually some attempt to cover these things up that they no longer think they need to do and that's also what's so destabilizing uh, mentally not just emotionally but like in terms of beliefs and how you think the world works and how you understand the world but but the dynamic of guerrilla warfare and the dynamic of uh this conflict where the israeli military is exclusively focused on killing civilians and the resistance is exclusively focused on attacking military targets and it's like it's like they're they're in some kind of parallel race like the israelis are trying to kill as many, so many civilians to make Kassam despair and surrender. And Kassam is trying to destroy as much military equipment as to make the Israeli military collapse before they can, you know, complete annihilation of the of the civilian population. And it's it's such a it's it's such an unusual confrontation that way. And it's also hard to analyze um and analyze where things are going and how things are going um so i just these are also some of the difficulties that, and it's also why like i keep you know i keep checking in on the channel and like people um mateo i think the other week was feeling a lot of despair and i was trying to tell him like this one phrase that i haven't that i haven't been tweeting but like the one phrase that i keep repeating when i see israel you know announcing the new plan for what they're going to do and announcing what how they're going to ethnically cleanse gaza or do this or that or move everybody to the sinai or make everybody go to another place and i keep the phrase i keep thinking is they have to win the war first though they 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 still you can't skip that step i know they want to everything they're doing is to try to skip that step but they can't you can't actually skip that step um uh, I I I want to give the floor to Alex now, and then Sina, you'll be lucky. Be, you'll bring us all uh, home. You'll bring it all home. No, this is this is a uh, thank you for for all the the great work that all of you guys are doing. Um, and I think what you just mentioned, Justin, the the temptation to to fall in despair is the one that we have to continuously resist and, and remind one another, right? Like that always helps. It's just like a basic lesson, right? Solid. This is the, the powerful function of solidarity um, to, to keep the fight going. And, and from someone like myself, who's here in, in, in the United States, like one of the things I think that Rafat really, I think taught me and, and especially the way that you guys are talking about him, if he didn't despair, why should we? Right, like if he didn't despair, if he, if if many people like him continue to resist, continue to fight, like 
the fuck are we to like just give up and be and and, and allow ourselves to just go into that despair right and i think particularly when um you know it's difficult right like it, it's I keep coming back to the question of audience and like we're just you know people in the west people so-called west people in the united states canada uk like the the ideological you know warfare that we're subjected to every single day makes it easier to fall into despair right it's just outrageous it's outrageous what's going on it's outrageous that um you know i'm not going to cry for a college president of an ivy league institution but like that's bullshit like what's happening right like the way that they're uh that uh what the US government wants to do is to outlaw free speech, not in the service of their own nationalistic project per se, at least not directly, but in the service of another settler colonial nationalist project. It's like wild, like we haven't seen this shit before. Um, so that's how people compare to McCarthyism, like, no, this is like worse, because like, you can't even say that uh, they're doing this to protect the United States from the Soviet Union. It's like for somebody else, another entity who uh, that is really just bringing down any sort of illusions that we have of the so-called international rules-based order like that shit is done like that is completely gone um i mean we i know it intellectually we know it intellectually like uh, you know but it's it's another thing to see this in real time right and you know emotionally i i I go i am going through a lot of the stuff that you guys have described and but i think you know one thing that i keep telling myself is to allow myself to change, like we're supposed to change watching this, right? Um, you know, to the rage, the indignation, the um, the solidarity, the the humor. I mean, that's another thing from Rafat, right? Like he was really funny online. Um, and, and that's another thing. So how do we allow ourselves to be changed in a positive direction in support of uh, of the Palestinian movement for national liberation? Like as, a, as part of this broader transnational solidarity movement, um, I think is the, Thing that again I have to keep reminding myself of this right because it is the temptation is to fall into despair because we are seeing some really horrific things but at the same time the fact that we're seeing those horrific things shows like how delicate how superficial all this all these structures are um and I think uh as someone I, I think I mentioned this last time we met up right but as someone who like studies armed struggle in Latin America like Arm resistance is is only like the 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 surface manifestation of uh, deeper processes, right? So Israel may think that they can get rid of of, of Qassam, they can get rid of these this arm resistance, but there are deeper lying things that are just going to give rise to similar manifestations in in the future. Um, and I think that's a that's another re- way to understand what they're doing with their horrific violence, with the targeting of people like Rafat or or intellectuals, doctors. I mean, they're they're really trying to kill the possibilities for the future. They're really trying to kill. They're trying to kill the the future the, the future possibilities of of a, of a free Palestine. Um, but and they have to go to these lengths to do this. They have to completely demolish any sort of liberal international democratic illusions that people in the West have had and have to hold on to, to explain like to justify how we live the way we live in the West. Um, and it's being done by this little small part of the world, by this by these groups who are facing, obviously not just Israel, but uh, but the most the empire, the global empire that is willing to violate its own laws to continuously send weapons and to send support to to Israel to wage a war of extermination against the people in Gaza. Um, so I, I, for me, it's like trying to 
hold on to, I guess, to that dialectic, right, of, of, of to try to understand the reasons of this horrific type of, of, of violence that we're witnessing. Um, I also, again, keep going back to this question of audience. I think one of the things, you know, watching people's responses on social media to, to Rafat was he, for, for an English speaking audience, like he, he, he was a really important interlocutor and translator. Um, and someone online, I, I can't remember who made the point that it's because of him or he's one of the main reasons why there are English language speakers in Gaza who are able to communicate to people in the West in terms of what's happening, right? So that idea of the marker is really powerful. Um, the idea that it wasn't just him articulating these ideas and communicating these ideas and experiences, what's going on on the ground, but he also taught and inspired, you know, multiple generations of people, of Palestinians to do the same. Um, and that is the struggle of the pen, right? That is the struggle of a, of a teacher. Um, and that's really powerful. And I think perhaps that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, people online who had no direct contact with him still felt touched by, had an, a, a really strong emotional response to, to, to his killing, to his assassination um, that, you know, we'll probably learn was, was directed, right? Like it was, there's a reason why he was targeted, right? And that again shows, uh, to Tarek's point, his power that he wasn't continue, constantly talking about, but it's the power that he had through the means that he was that he had at his disposal, through the type of struggle that he chose to wage. Um, so since I'm a Latin Americanist, I can't help but like to just give one, maybe two quotes that that I think help me keep going in, in these times. One is uh, Salvador Allende, the president of Chile, his final speech that he gives to the nation as he's getting bombed by his own military in, in the Chilean uh, version of the White House. It's a really famous speech. You can find the text online and you can hear the audio on like YouTube. But there's a part that's really powerful, right? We said, quote, uh, they have the force and will be able to dominate us, but social processes can be arrested by neither crime nor force. History is ours and, and the people make history. And I think that's, I think that's in, in a way um, from uh, another corner of the world, um, I think it's, it's a really interesting way to think about what's going on on the ground. Um, to think about what what resistance is producing and what resistance is going to continue to produce, even amidst these horrific scenes that are coming out every single day, which is just one damn massacre after another. Um, the, the last thing I'll say is, this week I retweeted a, a poem by this great Guatemalan poet um, from the 1960s, Otto René, Molin, uh, Otto René Castillo. Um, he was a uh, the famous poet in Guatemala during the 1960s. He eventually joined the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias, the FAR, um, in 1967. Uh, eventually, he's captured after, uh, after a battle, and he suffers a horrific death at the hands of this genocidal Guatemalan military. But he has this great uh, poem called uh, Apolitical Intellectuals. And that's also a good reminder to myself in terms of someone who also tries to wield the pen and try to teach, um, essentially trying to teach uh, American students that 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 meme of that we are the baddies or are we the baddies um but that that poem is a really powerful um uh, it's just such like a piercing uh, uh challenge that, that that this poet offered to the so-called apolitical intellectuals in his, in his country that were you know going along with with a, a horrific series of different uh, military governments in, in in guatemala um so I highly recommend that the listeners, if you if you want uh, something that you can throw at your professors, at your teachers, at uh, all these bullshit journalists that we have to put up with who are uh, trying to confuse what's at stake and what are the coordinates of struggle right now, uh, just throw that poem at them and see see how they react. 
the one that I'll mention, I'll stop is this horrific nation article that I read this week. I think Louis, you had the best response to it where you kind of edited the, the title about the problem in Palestine is, is complicated and nuanced and to say that it isn't is, is bull yeah, I can't remember the rest of it, but uh, Louis, I think you had the, the perfect response to it. Uh, the, the coordinates of struggle are actually quite apparent. Um, and, and I think, I think all of you for the work that you do um, for reminding us of that and, and, to, and to not allow the rest of us to fall into despair. Gracias, Alex. Um, I wrote both those things down, so that's helpful for me too. So <laughs> thanks, Alex. Um, well, Sina, you're the one who brings us together continuously, so you can you can kind of bring us together at the end here. Except when he bails to do house. Well, he brings us together. <laughs> in the, yeah. in listen, listen, drywall is really hard, okay? And it's hard to do by yourself. And I have to hold the little piece of drywall. Actually, I'll be honest. Every time, like these afternoons when I was working on the drywall, I was like, I was, I was overcome with grief at certain points because I was like, think about how hard this fucking garage of mine has been to get to this point. Like this, this, it was a garage. It's like an external garage. It came with my house. It was like, there was like a holes in the ceiling. You could see like light coming in. Um, I like went in there once, like when I just bought the place and there was like a, um, like a partridge in there and it, it I, I scared it and it flew right into a window and died. And I was like, okay, not coming back in here again. Uh, I'll see you later. And now when I look at it and it's like, wow. And when we're, when I was like helping my contractor cut these pieces and I was like, this is so fucking hard. One fucking garage. How do you rebuild an entire country or like an entire Gaza strip? Like, how do you do that? Many times. And yeah, like how many pieces of drywall do you need? Right. Like how, like, and how, and what will it take? And, you know, I vacillate in those moments between despair and like, holy shit, Palestinians have done this how many times now? Like how many times over the course of their history, they've like gotten drywall again and they've put up drywall to like fix their lives and to like keep resisting. So like, I guess at the end of all this, and we're, I know we, we've been going for a while and I know some of you probably have to go. I keep thinking, you know, I keep thinking like, yeah, the, the, we are objects of Zionist soft power, right? We are, we are subject, we, we are not subjects of their, of, we are not objects of their hard power, right? That's Palestinians and Lebanese and people over there, right? We, but we are objects, we are objects of their soft power. And we're watching that soft power machine flail in a way we've never seen before. In the same way, mirroring their hard power machine that all it can be reduced is trying to get like some guy, some, some fucking doofus tried to get me fired from a job I haven't had for six years. Uh, like I was like, wow, this is the best you can do, bro. Like I haven't had that job since 2016 and you're trying to get me fired with it. Like this is, this is all you can Sharing a picture of you and, and your dog in a field. And he's like, oh, isn't it <laughs> yeah. must be nice to be playing with a dog in a field. <laughs> And, and and you realize like oh like they're just bankrupt like they're just bankrupt 
And the same way that like our society here, here, I'm not here, I'm away, but you know, the societies that we're born of, that we're that have created, that like we live in, like how fraudulent they are. Now, mind you, we knew this. We knew that our society was figuring. Like we were joking when we would joke about fake ass Canada being three mining corporations in a trench coat. That wasn't a joke. Right. It is a fake ass country with that's three three mining corporations in a trench coat. Right. Like that's what it is. Right. And we're watching the ways that the political elite, the like sort of corporate political and media elite too, right, just fall in line when one of their when one of their allies, right? Zionism is an ally, Israel's an ally of Canada. And it's not because of some Israeli lobby. It's not because Jews control the media. It's because at a basic level of their political DNA, these states share a fundamental, like a fundamental quality, which is their settler colonial states. And they're built around European settler colonialism. I mean, we're speaking here in English. Like, is that an accident? Like, that's not an accident, right? Like, that's because settler colonialism preceded us for centuries in the countries where we are. Right. Louis, mind you, it's a different story for Louis. That's the country where it's from. But you get my you get what I'm saying is that ultimately like this. <laughs> but Louis is Louis, unlike us, uh, is ruled by someone named Rishi Suna. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just yeah. I'll never yeah. I'll never not. Yeah. Find that yeah. amusing. I, yeah. I mean, like, but like the fraudulent, like the fraudulence of our countries and like moral, whatever, and like the entire systems. This is something that is evident to everyone, right? Anyone who has half a brain, right? That like, oh yeah, the way that they destroyed Yugoslavia for like a fraction of what for what of what Israel has done in two months, right? The way that you know, and it's like, oh, then they, like that they, they sacrificed it. And it's like, oh, maybe that was all bullshit in the beginning. Like maybe that was all bullshit to begin with, that 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 the idea that the West is some sort of shield against genocide instead of itself being a product of genocide, multiple ongoing genocides. I mean, it's it's moments like this where I thank the fact that Nick Estes like followed me on Twitter one day in like 2019. And I was like, oh, who's this guy? Well, this guy's kind of cool. And I like followed him back. And then like I just DM'd him the way I do with people. I'm like, yo, you want to come on my goofy little show? It's uh, I try my best. You know, I got audacity. I got a mic, you know, like here we go. Like, like and he was like, sure, man. And and like I've learned so much from that one little DM. Like the one chain of events, like the chain of events that began with like a DM that got me to this point where I've learned about so many struggles about, you know, like battles that took place two centuries ago about like and and how like oh, and what were the lessons from them about like, you know, struggles of political organizations like 70 years ago or whatever. Right. Like how so much knowledge just from sitting and listening to podcast episodes that I've been editing as a producer, how it's it's changed my worldview. Like I was a Dickens scholar when I. Like, like say, let's say that out loud. I was a scholar of Charles fucking Dickens. Okay. When I emailed, like when I, when I did, when I DM'd Nick Estes, like that's what I was doing. I was sitting there and I was like, in uh, 1861, he wrote this line and uh, you know, it really comes from this really interesting thing called the founding hospital. And he got this pamphlet and like, that was my life guys. Like that was my fucking life. Like, like the, I, now I'm here five years later and I'm shouting into a microphone with my friends and like my allies 
And these things, and like we we started this like this series as like a joke. We called the tanky group therapy as like a joke, but it actually is group therapy now. Like we're actually running like an unlicensed therapy ring right here. <laughs> like this is like a like we need an actual therapist to come one day. It'll be really funny, actually. Actually, we should do that sometime. Let's get a real therapist here because and you had like the- you had a there's somebody between Nora or you has had an actual Palestinian or Laura Laura Sheehy I think Laura yeah, Sheehy yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 um we should have them on we like, should we, we should yeah. have her on yeah for sure yeah we and like I'm thinking of that moment and I'm thinking of like you know like the DM to Nick and how like how far sort of like it came from that and I realized that like a single human life can change so much from like the course, from like the courses. And like, we try to think of our lives as this like narrative where, oh, I was born and then my parents did this. And then I went to these schools and I affiliated with this and then I got this job. But like, there are there are a million processes unfolding in your social life that you're like not aware of that like come to you. And I realized that like, like in this moment where we're watching this like live stream genocide, right? Which I have to say that like, you know, this is one chapter of a really like old book, right? Of settler colonialism, of like white, of like European settler colonialism. The Gaza War of 2023 is like one chapter, right? And it's 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 shocking. It's shocking to like really think about that. But like the fact is, like a million, 1.5 million Algerians died to like liberate their country. Right. Like how many million, like a similar number died in Vietnam yeah, to two, liberate two their to country. Five. Nobody even five, knows right? the nearest million or how many. Right. Like, like, two, like I was thinking of the, the war to defend Korea from from American invasion in the PLA army alone, 275,000 martyrs. I mean, that is one that was just one war out of like hundreds, if not thousands. And then if we include antiquity, it's actually like law beyond our ability to count anything, right? Like like there is, there is unfortunately in our global species of our, like the history of our global, of our species, like there is immense amount of political violence. And it's a moment, and, and part of the job of living in the West, part of like your job in the West is to just, is to just believe that that's not there, is to think that it was like part of some process of liberation. And now Kant told us that we had eternal peace and we're okay now. You know, it's like Milhouse, like saying, I'm okay now. My mom got me deodorant. It's like, this is, this is like a moment where we're supposed to live under this fiction that like, oh, we live in this perpetual peace of the snow. It's like the violence witnessed in Gaza was also like, was also bestowed upon all of the country of Iraq, all of the country of Yemen, all of like like Raqqa. Raqqa looks like Gaza, right? And I want I don't mean that to minimize what's happening in Gaza at all, but it's more to try to see the long game in all of this and try to understand this as like historical processes. And everything you guys said, and it's like I've learned so much from this like an hour and a half with you guys sitting here. Like I've learned so much. Like I didn't even, I didn't, I realized I was like, oh, I should have Allende's, I should have Allende's speech translated and put it on as an episode. Like, why not? Like, I should just do that. That's awesome. Like that's, you know, so like for me, the, the despair sets in constantly because like I'm a human fucking being and watching human life get extinguished like constantly and the records of them and the people. And if one thing Palestinians have like done well is to create a global information system that 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 speaks to their struggle that speaks of their struggle that that judiciously shares their victories and their losses 
right? That like not just military, but like human losses that celebrates them. And I can't help but think that like the power of martyrdom is the real weapon that Palestinians have. That like, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to put my Shia pants on here. I know you're all going to, I know you're all going to go nuts if I do this, but really like that jumping Kassam fighter, right? Like doing like a leap of victory, right? That's, the closest thing that anybody in the West will ever get to that is like watching a movie, a fictitious depiction of some war, right? Like the closest feeling. Palestinians get to live that. They get to live actual and make history. I mean, we 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 have this like go dopey thing about oh, make history, blah, 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 but they actually do. And in and as they do that, they radicalize generation after generation. Like I owe my political education, my life to Palestinians. Like I have been a student of the Palestinian struggle like for more than half of my life. And in a weird way, like Iran's involvement in the Palestinian struggle has made me more proud to be Iranian. Like I'm not a nationalist by any degree. Like it's like, oh, I was born in Iran, congratulations. Like, but like when people at protest are like, where are you from? I'm like Iranian, they're like, yeah. You know, like when Palestinians do that specifically, they're like, yeah, man, your country's awesome. Like, thanks for the support. And you realize like, oh, yeah, we're on the right side of history here. Like, yeah, Islamic Republic has some problems, bad things, sure. But like this thing, this big thing of supporting Palestinian resistance and helping to organize and providing arms and doing it in such a way that's like it's not ideological. Right. Like they give weapons to people who are that they're not politically aligned with. They're not some they're not some sort of like, you know, we're only going to support you here and there, like the Qataris, for instance. Um, and even then, the Qataris don't even do any military support. It's all political. Right. So it's like it's something like that. And I realized that, like, yeah, I'm nothing without the Palestinian struggle. I'm some doofus Dickens scholar who's like who who couldn't even get a job doing that. OK, like I couldn't even get a job do being a Dickens scholar. And now I'm sitting here and. I, I've, I've like, I'm independent now. I have no need to like beg anyone. I have my dignity with me. I don't, I don't have to like sit there and worry about whatever, right? And I realized that like the radicalism that Palestinians gave to me, like the inspirations of their struggle that continue to this day, their ability to fight, like an amazing ability to fight and their ability to like articulate themselves to the world as a country, as a movement, as a people, it's just like, I, I'm nothing without this. Like I have, like, well, what else do I have? Like some history books? I mean, like, yeah, you can learn from other struggles, sure. And there are other ones, of course. But there's something very special about the Palestinian liberation movement that I don't think that I think will be a defining feature of like all of our lives. Like 30 years from now, we'll be, let's hope, let's hope that we'd like meet for episode 3,467 oh. of Tanky Group Therapy. Oh, I, know, I know where we're meeting. Where? where we're meeting louis uh louis wrote uh, uh the tribute for refat and at the end of the at the very end if you guys read to the very end not everyone reads to the very end but i do if you read to the very end louis says he's gonna he's gonna go to a cafe and he's gonna look at the beach in gaza and he's gonna think about refat so that's an appointment that's an appointment for everybody that's a standing appointment we're all gonna be there uh, Louis, we'll see you there. 
And I forgot right. to say that I, that um, the podcast that I help that I helped uh, I helped set up, but it's not run by me. It's run by my friend Ian. Uh, it's called the Anti Imperialist Archive, and he's already gotten together. He's mixed together a bunch of Rafat's appearances, and it's available to listen. And he got someone to record his final poem. I'm planning on doing more stuff with his writings. Um, I'm actually going to consult you, Nora. I want you to help me pick which which right. writings we should we should find and I'm going to get some voice actors and like our job like part of bearing witness is to celebrate the martyrs and all of them matter and all of them count and you know there's this weird um there's this weird thing that has been popping up and I'll finish with this is like this weird sort of conundrum that's popped into my mind left over from my from my scholarly days of like this sort of Anne Frank problem mm-hmm. of like one person stands in for millions Mm-hmm. right and like you have that you have that sort of you have the sort of logical like conundrum of that like how does one how does one person do that is that fair to that one person is it a really good thing to do is it morally like ethically like politically whatever is this a productive thing to do and mm-hmm. like I'm not going to resolve that there's like entire books written about this but at the same time like you think that like oh Rafat was a symbol of the Palestinian struggle like the way he would write like we're back bitch and like tag Israel on Twitter <laughs> like, I, think, I think about that tweet once a day at least <laughs> so when like I, I fix something like we're back bitch <laughs> like, yeah here we go I just want to tag Israel and you realize like yeah he lost his life for that like that's why he lost his life if he was just if he was just quiet, if he did like, if yeah. he if he kept quiet, like some of our friends, mm-hmm. uh, some of the people on my show who keep quiet judici- judiciously and like just to make sure that they're not like, targeted, uh, he he might have survived. He probably would have, right? Statistically, I mean, not totally, but wow. but of course, like that wasn't him, right? That's not how he lived his life, and that's not and that's not how Palestinians live. They they fight, and so like this, I guess our job is to sit here and to keep talking. And to keep highlighting and celebrating and mourning and grieving. And we go through it, guys. And I'm, I'm proud to be going through it with you guys. And I'm proud that, you know, I, all of this came out, again, weird thing. All of, like, this conversation came out of Twitter for me. Like, I met all of you through Twitter. <laughs> and, like, and, it's, and, it, and, it, and it, says, it says something that, like, even if the imperialists have all this, like, soft power, like, we can build stuff around it the same way Palestinians get their messages out through a whole wide network of, 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 of like, you know, spokesmen, spokespeople, whatever, and copying, pasting messages and whatever, right? Like, this is just our struggle. And for the rest of our lives, we have to remember this stuff. We have to remember these days, these times. And we also have to keep in mind that like, yeah, there are other wars. There are other things that happen that we have to keep paying attention to, that we have to sort of read that are the burden of like living in the global North and being part of this genocidal machine in which we are a part of our taxes, our lives, our work, that like part of it is despairing at the like violence of it and and screaming about it. And sometimes people laugh at you and sometimes people, you know, and we don't have the power of the mainstream media, but it doesn't matter at this point. All it matters that like we keep pulling it. So I'm going to end there. Uh, thank yeah. you all for for this. Thank you, Justin, for hosting these. Yeah, of course. So a week from now is the 17th. Two weeks from now is Christmas Eve. I don't care. I assume that the war will still be going on. So we'll do it then next week or the week after. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, guys. Good to see everyone.